I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, The Flintstones, by Mark Russell and Steve Pugh. Ah, oh, so Casey, um, of all the things that I could write down on paper and say, this is a thing that you are going to love, I never would have called this one. Uh, I thought, we're just, you're pitching it was, this is a fucking stupid idea, but <laughs> I was wrong. Yeah, so of course we're talking about the 2016 Gritty reboot of the Flintstones <laughs> by DC Comics, uh, written, of course, by Mark Russell, who had given us uh, comics like um, Exit Stage Left, the new Snagglepuss reboot that they put out, <laughs> which is apparently fucking brilliant. And the reboot they did of the 1970s comic Prez about a teenage U.S. president, <laughs> which is also fucking amazing and got canceled way before its time. So uh, to sit down and join us, of course, is our good longtime friend of the show and host of the View from the Gutters comic book podcast, Mr. Tobiah Panshin. Welcome to the show, Tobiah. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to talk about this comic because, oh, my God. Yeah, holy shit. I mean, right. This is and and just to to oh. put this in a little bit of context cuz I think that you read those out of order. Mark Russell started on Prez and it got canceled way before its time. And I think DC kind of knew what they had on their hands with this guy because they immediately put him on the Flintstones, which as we'll discuss is absolutely incredible. It's my number 1 book of 2017, which is a high, high mark for the Flintstones. For a licensed book about a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Right. And then coming off of that, they immediately turned around and they're like, you have to do something else. And they've now put him on Snagglepuss, which at the time we're recording this episode, I think only the first or first couple of issues have come out, but it's already turning out to be, you know, every much a piece with what he did here in the Flintstones, which I absolutely love. Yeah, it's it's a sort of reboot that when you hear about it, I think the cynical fan part of your brain, your hackles get up and you go, oh, God, you're doing a gritty reboot about this where you're going to touch on darker subject matter. This is going to be another space ghost meets the Green Hornet or the like, you know, you're... Mm -hmm dynamite licensed whatever throw it out there and it doesn't matter books well like my, a- my first thought of this really was is I, I can understand that with the endlessly ex- and cynically exploitable nostalgia factor that's in all entertainment now including comic books obviously um i was like i was like this is gonna be trash this is gonna be the type of trash that you get what we what what it ends up being is kind of like a if i can use an analog kind of like a battlestar galactica style adaptation where the adaptation itself is so is leagues beyond more interesting and more deep and more enjoyable than the original. Absolutely. So we should probably get into an explanation of this. Uh, Tobiah, if you had to sum up what this reboot of the Flintstones is in a paragraph or two, how would you sum it up? I would say that this is a vaguely nihilistic very existentialist examination of the human condition within the context of the genesis of civilization. This is very much a story about a group of people who have been in a hunter-gatherer society who, you know, every day is a struggle between life and death, and they have, within a single generation, transformed into a modern capitalist consumerist society And this book examines everything that is deeply, troublingly wrong with our modern society. Mm -hmm. This book has gut punches in every single issue Mm. where I, at the very least, you know, would read a page or a panel and I would just have to stop for five minutes and really think about what it's saying and the way in which it is indicting our modern lives. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that, that really hit me. This is a book I came to really late. It it was released between 2016 and 2017, and it was a slow burn. And I think people sort of discovered it 
when suddenly the Washington Post and Wired and all these other magazines that don't normally cover comics that deeply were going, you guys won't believe what's coming out under the name right. of the Flintstones. Right. This is, they're calling it the, like the most woke comic that's being put out. They're calling calling it secretly amazing. They're saying this is something that will make you cry. And I, I had to pick it up then, especially when I saw the art. And what I really love about the art is this is not your standard Fred Flintstone, Hanna-Barbera drawing. It's drawing him in a much more realistic sense, but not downplaying the cartoonish nature of the world that he lives in. Right. This is still Fred Flintstone in the orange kind of like cheetah print in a onesie with a blue tie. And he still has a talking animal appliances. We still have grotesquely uh, overformed forearms, you know, oh, all yeah. the men do. Yes. Oh, <laughs> which I love. Yeah. I love the weird, grotesquely misshapen way that the characters are drawn in this right. book. Because if you live in a world where you are working down in the quarry, you are going to get pretty ripped. Right. And I think it's, it's that weird sense of realism applied to a cartoon character. And I think that that is part of what makes this book work in a way where it wouldn't otherwise work because we're talking about something that was originally conceived of as a, just a lifting a full-scale ripoff of the honeymooners mm -hmm. in cartoon form where at the end of each episode they're hawking cigarettes yes, like this right. is very much like front and center in 20th century american like pop culture the flintstones just the fact that the Flintstones have been off the air for 66, I think it was when it went 40, 50 years, yeah. and they're still using it to sell breakfast cereal and vitamins. <laughs> and then you're turning around and you're creating this work with these characters. I think it has a level of impact where it can really kind of sneak in under your skin in a way that you're not expecting it to where something that was predicated in an original group of characters would not have the same impact versus seeing Fred Flintstone and Dino and the Great Gazoo talking about, you know, the threat of extinction. Yeah. That's what I really love in this is that it really uses the best kind of subversion that what I sort of expected when they first announced this Hanna-Barbera reboot um, and what it managed to subvert in my own expectations is that this is going to be a copy of a copy of a copy of a thing that has been a comic book trope forever, ever since Alan Moore rebooted um, Marvel Man slash Miracle Man in the 1980s, was let's take a thing made for kids, and the whole joke is that it's really dark and adult now. And it can be done really well, like with Alan Moore, and then it can be done less well as it was with everyone who was inspired by Alan Moore <laughs> and did their own things like, oh, it's really cool, but look at, you know, Archie's a pot smoker or something like that. And, you know, and that's usually a mad magazine joke. It's let's take a thing and then just treat it in the most inappropriate way possible. So when I saw the, the, the preview art for it, I wrote this whole thing off. I said, oh, wow, there's a thing I'm not buying. And then I never thought about it again until I saw those articles. Um, I think what what you said before, uh, Casey, is very true. The comparison to Battlestar Galactica, which is that you've created a thing that has so totally surpassed what the original was, that I love the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, but I have no desire to go back and watch the 1970s series, because it's almost exactly like the Flintstones in that regard, which is that it's kind of bland, I have a certain affection for it because I remember it from childhood, but I don't actually like it on its own merits. Not really. And what this reboot did is took what was there, what the potential for that premise was, and actually used it to its potential. That Battlestar Galactica should not be a wacky space show where people have, you know, brown capes and go on fun adventures. It's a show about fucking genocide. So if you're going to do that show to its example, you really have to own that premise and go from that point that these are people fleeing the death of their species. And with the Flintstones, you have the joke that it's cavemen living in a world that looks like modern suburbia. And that's a great opportunity to talk about what civilization is, especially because we go through all these big societal changes with us. Like, think of all the things that have changed in our society socially in just the last 10 years. 
and, or the last 20 years, the last 30 years, how radically different, like turns of phrases that would be horribly offensive to us now that used to be in PG rated movies as a joke. And you look at the Flintstones and say, these are people who are living in a world that the 80s to them was a hunter-gathering society yeah. where they didn't have shopping malls and they didn't have the Power Goat 5000 to cut their lawn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can even take that a step further and you can look at all the things that in our modern society we assume have been fixed and static for hundreds if not thousands of years. The concept of marriage, for example. Our modern concept of marriage is maybe... 100 to 120 years old. In this book, the concept of marriage is being invented as we speak. Like they are creating that there and now, and they're going, well, but why are we doing that this way? Like, what about the good old sex cave? Yeah, what about go back that? to the sex like, cave, you perverts. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's taking the underpinnings of our society that we assume are ancient whether they actually are or not, and saying, well, what if we were just inventing this for the first time today? Right. Is this how we would do it? What would that actually look like? What would people's experience of that be? Yeah, and what I love about it, too, is that there's a sense of humor about it. And I think that a book like this really kind of exists in a place that a lot of satire goes, which is it has something really biting to say. And oftentimes it can be really funny and really dark, but it lacks that last emotional oomph that this series has in spades. And it's because it's humane. Well, I, 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 I listed them out because I wanted to be sure. So this is only a 12-issue run, and it's over, right? They're not, yes. doing, not doing it anymore, as far, as far as we know. Yeah, it is a complete series in, I think, two volumes, of right. six issues each, and uh, that's the whole thing. So only 12 issues. So it's a year's worth of, uh, it's a year's worth, that's 25 or so pages, you know, for each, it's about 150 pages, right, of, of a comic book. I tried to write down all of the things that they tried to tackle, Throughout these this tw- these twelve issues, religion, consumerism, the news media, militarism, gay marriage, electoral politics, genocide, patriarchy, tourism, treatment of animals, art, gentrification, agriculture, civilization, and there's probably a dozen more that I just that I failed to write down. All of that somehow packed into this some basically story about fred flintstone trying to find out like what's the reason what's the reason why we have a civilization rather than just going back to what we were doing before and how how much a lot of this stuff comes out of these basic human needs that they're like misfires of trying to fill these these sense of having a hole in your life that mm-hmm. everyone is scared everyone is awkward everyone is desperate to think that their life is meaningful and that, like the religion one, it's one of my favorite things in the book. Like yep. they, they all worship a bird god named Morp. And Morp has a certain amount of cultural significance to them because when they were hunter and gatherers, they would follow this bird to find clean water and they'd find the, the places where the bird could graze. And that would, there was sort of a significance to this bird and it meant something to them. But as they got a consumerist society, they also found out that this bird made a really good record player. <laughs> and suddenly the idea of worshiping this thing became silly. So you watch the the church that they go to go through these radical changes throughout this book as they try to find a way to square modern society with these beliefs and still desperately try to attach some sense of meaning to themselves. Like, oh, well, constantly being wrong about it. Constantly yeah. being wrong about yeah. it and, <laughs> and trying to figure it out. And it's, just, it's like... All these things that we still hammer around with is still new to them. The idea of going to a church and doing this is still new. Like the priest is kind of making this up as he goes along. So like we can't worship the bird anymore. Well, what about this cute pink elephant? We love this little baby elephant. But then somebody recognizes it as a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) And it just kind of goes from there. And you see the sort of formings of what a religion would look like when you try to create sort of a monotheistic like he starts taking indulgences because people are too lazy to make good on bad things they do. They feel guilty for things they do and they want some sense of absolution. But it's just easier to give the priest money and he's dealing with all of these bills. So he takes it at first. And it gets to the point where you have this really awesome story about, you know, what is the purpose of civilization? What are we good for? Because there's a cave-in at the quarry that Fred Flintstone works. And a this, worker This gets- is my favorite one out of all of them, by the way. Oh, it's so fucking great. He yeah. gets buried in there. But the rescue effort would toll money away from this major order that Mr. Slate wants to have. And he goes to the priest and says, listen, 
There's a guy down there. He's probably dead. They're not going to give it. I want to order them to call off the rescue and just get on with our lives. How much is that going to cost me to square with <laughs> Gerald, who is the name of their god? <laughs> and you see that that's the moment where the the priest goes, oh, my God, th- this has to end. I can't because this is we're giving ourselves permission to be monsters when we do this, that we do this because we want to be good people and we want to have meaning. But if we just use this as a way to make excuses, then it's lost. There's no purpose for this at all. And uh, you really get to see that Fred is this guy who refuses to give up on this guy. And he has a line to Mr. Slate saying, if society is about anything and it's supposed to mean anything and it has any right to survive, then the whole point is to care about people when there's nothing in it for us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, what I, what I love about it is, is they, each story is like a little morality play, each one of them. And usually it can have, it's usually layered with two or three different things that it's sort of twiddling around the thumbs. And I think at the very beginning, they introduce Fred Flintstone, who's of course working at this at the uh, the, sl- the slate mine, and uh, um, Mister Slate hires some Cro-Magnons or Neanderthals. Oh, they're Neanderthals, but they keep calling them Cro-Magnons. So automatically, they exist in this world where there are the people that you know from Bedrock, and then there are other races that are more or less equivalent, more or less equivalent to sort of the strength and the the intelligence. And the Neanderthals go through this journey where. They get the possibility to come into civilization after having been just hunters before. Um, so they work with they work at the quarry with with Fred Flintstone, um, and that after their first week's pay, they get paid in gravel, right? So they yeah. get paid in. Uh, and Fred asks, "So how do you like making rock?" And the first Neanderthal says, "I hated it." Then he then he grabs his sack of money from the window. Oh, you've got you've got it up right I've there. I've got it pulled up because it's one of the uh, pages that I I marked. Yeah, it's so Neanderthal. Uh, the other one says, what's this? And Fred says, it's money. And Neanderthal 2 says, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And Fred says, I don't know. Buy something someone else hated making. <laughs> that, is, that is so... Right. And oh. that's that's very on the nose for, I think, one of the major points of this series, which right. is... And I think that Mike kind of touched on this earlier. It's all of the pointless things that we build up around ourselves to distract from the fact that we're ultimately not happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they keep creating new layers and new things to distract themselves so that they can go on ignoring the the underlying cause that their lives are ult- ultimately empty and meaningless and that life itself might be empty and meaningless and how do you create meaning? Yeah, and the, they don't know. Well, I, I find that interesting because it plays with that that ennui, I guess you could say, uh, by having the characters frequently flashback stories from when they were younger, from when they were hunter-gatherers, and they were constantly wandering around. And so this becomes a way you can sort of square things that are happening in the current civilization with where they were before. But they, it's uh, there's, a, there's a nostalgia attached to it, and because you, you got the sense that those are what crafted who, what kind of people they really were. And now that this new world has sort of moved in, maybe this is an analog for being a kid and moving into adulthood, maybe part of this, but they, the these characters have all moved into civilization and they all can see, um, that it was more difficult when they were hunter gatherers and it was more dangerous, but life was not the same as it was in civilization. And mostly everyone has problems and they just don't know how to deal with it. But then ultimately I love that the Neanderthals decide that they don't want to be part of civilization. They said, as far as I can tell, I think the quote was the main point of civilization is to get other people to do killing for you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And he's just like, this is stupid. And what I kind of love is that the framing device of the first issue is so perfect. It's the only bit that takes part in the modern age where they find this perfectly preserved uh, Neanderthal and he's wearing that necklace and that hat. We find out he got the hat through the claw machine at the uh, <laughs> the out uh, the outback snake house, yes. and that uh, that um, the the, cl- the the necklace he had he got as a way that Mister Slate threw that at him to get him to try to fight a mammoth for his own entertainment for his entertainment because I'm a rich yeah. guy and this will be funny to watch this guy fight this thing, and they both fall into a glacier. And uh, what I kind of love is that. Mr. Slate is this guy, probably more than anyone else, has this desperate sense of meaning that he wants to be important. That he's one of the people that when they built Bedrock on the graves of the tree people who lived there before them, they uh, he wanted, uh, he's a guy who benefited from that. That all the people who fought this war did not get rich, but he did. And he puts his name really big on the side of the quarry. And 
he's desperate to that thing to outlast everything, that this will be the thing that makes him immortal. It makes him important and makes him significant in the world. And that after all of that, that poor sap that he talked into falling into that, uh, into falling into that glacier is the one thing of bedrock that's left mm-hmm. that no, nobody remembers Mr. Slate. And there's that part of him too. And there's a storyline where they think that an asteroid is going to hit bedrock and they're all going to die. And Mr. Slate invites everyone over to a party at his house and nobody wants to come because without civilization, without a tomorrow, there's no reason to be nice to this guy. That The only reason that they kiss his ass is money that they need him. And now that they don't need him, he realizes how little people actually like him, that they just need the things that he has. And there's a sad moment where he looks out on his quarry and goes, well, I hope my name will still be there. I mean, that (laughs) sign that he built of himself, do you think that'll survive the asteroid? (laughs) And that's what I love this book does. Like I said, the humaneness, it would be easy to just use Mr. Slate as a metaphor, but there's these moments where you feel bad for him, where reality sinks in and he realizes how empty the meaning he's built for himself is. Yeah, that's really the horrible truth of this book is that it's not that bad people get their comeuppance or anything like that. It's that we all have problems, that Mr. Slate's unhappiness is fundamentally no different than Fred's unhappiness mm-hmm. or Wilma's. That, you know, all, all of the ways that modern civilization alienates us. That Mr. Slate at one point joins a religious of the religion of Vorp, who is a snake snake god God, wearing a business suit. (laughs) Um, And it's an, it's a religion for the upwardly mobile. And it's essentially kind of a Randian kind of the smart and the attractive and the rich will all kind of take what they want. And we won't feel bad about what happens to people who don't have anything or who get stepped on along the way. And he quickly finds out that he can get stepped on along the way, that he can be um, somebody who gets left because they're trading up to, <laughs> to, to date or to be around someone who's richer or better looking or younger. And that's a, these are the things that he does have these moments of awareness where he has to learn to not be a prick. And he has to learn not being a prick by having moments where he gets put in that place. And he has a great line that's something along the lines of when you – when you bow to a god of strength, you give up the ability to beg for mercy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I have. To, I was trying to think of the totality of what this piece is. First and foremost, I wanted to ask you why you gave me the uh, Marxism the comic book because that's kind of what this feels like. Is well, who is the publisher of this? Is it Dear Comrade Comics? Is that uh, Detective DC? That's the weird part. Is that DC? We've we've talked a lot about DC. I know that um, Tobias, you've you've had a lot of critical things to say about DC over the years, especially very much. Well, ever since the new 52 reboot, I've been incredibly critical of DC because of course they put, keep doing bullshit things, but especially in the last two or three years with works like this, they've really managed to turn things around, which is surprising to me most of all. And I want to give them all due credit for that, especially because they had been known. I mean, one of the big beefs I've had with them is they were very micromanaging and they were very like, I want to take, and scrape off all the interesting personality of the stuff that they put out and make sure it has this sort of uniform kind of look and feel and tone to it. And this feels the exact opposite of that. This feels like a book that on so many levels should not exist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this. When, so I worked in a comic book. I don't know if you knew this about me, Tobias. I worked in a comic book shop when I was a teenager. I did not know during that. During the, the hallowed 90s era when comic books were their best, shiny best. Um, and there was a guy. They were chromium. There yeah, was lots of foil covers. Yes. Um, the there was a guy who came in, and, and I'm from or uh, you know from rural Oregon, and uh, so it doesn't happen. So there was some kind of comic book artist guy who was doing a tour, and he came in and you know drew little drawings for like all the seven or eight year olds in the little town and came by. And there was a point in which he was just sort of idling by, and I was sitting there, and he was talking to me, and he mentioned um, Pink Floyd's The Wall. So he mentioned that whole thing about just being another brick in the wall sort of thing. And I kind of got, I formed this opinion about comic book artists and people who work on comic books are those people who are sort of anarchists who get paid to tear down the edifice, sort of like a comedian, you know, like they, they have the, they get the space, uh, 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 you know, on the page or in the the nightclub or whatever to be able to just rip it all down. And that's what's attract, attract those type of people. And certainly, what's his name? Is it Russell? Mark Russell. Yeah, Mark Russell is absolutely that. He's His point in doing this is to just tear down the edifice entirely. And that's why it makes it so surprising that it's, that it's funneled through something as sort of pop culturally 
sacrosanct as like the Flintstones, and also so so milk toast. Like, there's nothing about the Flintstones that seem particularly challenging. And I and I think that might be part of the reason why something like this is able to exist, because so frequently you know you have those rabble rousers, you have those people who want to critique society. And they're not able to do so in something like Superman or Batman. If you had this kind of story being told in a Superman book, it would never be allowed to happen because those characters are too commercially important for that to ever be allowed because somebody might get upset. But then when you have something that comes along like this, where, you know, these are Hanna-Barbera characters that are, I believe, owned by Warner Brothers. Well, I don't know. Um, Yes, they are. Yes. So... You know, the, the, there are these characters they're, that they're they idle own. properties, right? They're point. idle properties yeah. that they can kind of get away with doing whatever for, and nobody's really paying that close of an attention to it. So they can get away with doing these very subversive things, and then of course it turns out, wow, that was so popular. Let's have you do it again with another character that nobody cares about. <laughs> this time, Snagglepuss. I mean, that's kind of how we ended up getting Watchmen in the first place. Mm, was that right. DC owned all these Charlton characters? And Alan Moore was like, well, give me all these characters and I'll do this like crazy story with them. And he started working on it and they're like, well, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. You know, this is this is a little bit too much. We might want to use these characters at some point in the future. So we're going to take those away from you. You can still tell the story, but you have to use original characters. This is so interesting because I think the very last time that I heard about the Flintstones being developed to do anything other than, as Mike said, sell vitamins or fruity cereal right sugary cereal is that um none other than seth MacFarlane, when he was trying to get the cosmos reboot the version two on the air with neil degrasse tyson the way he was able to convince fox network to do it is that he had promised them that he would uh show run a reboot of the flintstones on the fox network on sunday nights if they would allow him to do Cosmos, to get the money together and to put it on all the Fox stations. Apparently, nothing ever came of that because there's no Seth MacFarlane produced Flintstone series. And I guess there, this couldn't have been, there couldn't have been a better sort of path for the Flintstones because I guarantee you, if it had come to Seth MacFarlane, it would have ran for a couple of years and it would have just been devastatingly horrible. Yeah. And it probably would have prevented this. Absolutely. Because yeah. it would have it would have created a new idea of what this IP is. And it wouldn't have been this kind of fresh slate to build on. And a lot of times, once they build a specific vibe that they want to do with that IP, they don't allow any competing versions of it yeah. to come out at the same time. So I think... Case in I, point, the Star Trek reboot. Exactly. Yeah. That that if the, the fact that they got a new Star Trek TV show doesn't seem to really happen until those movies probably aren't going to get any more sequels. So I, I was, I really found myself more than anything in recent years wanting to write down just passages from the Flintstones <laughs> um, because it manages to say things that are both funny and sad and weirdly succinct for how much they made me think. And one of them was that, that very same issue with the uh, averted doomsday. What I love, not only for the fact that uh, Dr. Sargon, which is basically a caveman version of Carl Sagan, <laughs> who even has a turtleneck, uh, which was pretty fucking great. Uh, he made a miscalculation on his abacus because there was a uh, sleeping, breeding um, moth that went on there that he thought was a stone, so his calculations were off. <laughs> but there's this bit at the end when everyone sort of realizes that after all this too much on information type honesty came out of everyone when they all thought they were going to die, that they just abandoned... Uh, the idea of civilization, they abandoned these these things that they thought gave them meaning and everyone else was far too exposed to each other because we all thought we were going to die. Everyone was far too honest with each other. There's a line that this newscaster has, which I absolutely love. I think I have the same line written down because I yeah, did the same too. thing. He says, I can only hope we can all go back to pretending that we're good people. <laughs> <laughs> like being in a... Like like being a series of mutually agreed upon delusions designed to keep us from becoming ongoing accumulations of regret. <laughs> and this idea that we have to sort of sweep this under the rug, that all this horror of too much information, everyone, like Mr. Slate can't go back to not knowing what everyone really thinks about him. That right. nobody wants to come to his party because they all want to be with people that they actually care about. <laughs> It's a similar sort of thing. I think the the reason why this works so well is 
Um, it's not taking place in 2016 or 2017. It's this world of anachronism, right? Where it's a mirror for our own world, but it's different enough that it can be this sort of like gut, you know, sort of gut bustingly hilarious sort of parody of the, of things. But it can also have an enormous amount of heart. Like I think in the the marriage episode, and of course it's an analog for gay marriage for sort of the the religious argument against gay marriage. The um, the guy who's the head priest of the Church of Gerald, who at at sometimes he's the worst excesses of like religious zealots and at other times he's just the guy trying to figure it out like he's the one person who's there who's most concerned with giving back giving them meaning now that civilization has arrived and um their marriage retreat is being attacked by people who hate the idea of marriage and want everyone to go back to the sex cave and um he says to them how are we supposed to deal with the changing world if we don't try new things we're not asking you to change your beliefs just that you respect our right to succeed or fail on our own and I was like, that that's a mind-blowing one. People and, don't say that sort of thing. And what I really love is that the bit that comes right after that, which is that uh, Adam and oh, Steve, yeah. a pair of a same-sex couple that Fred knew from <laughs> when he was a kid, decide that they want to try getting married, and they show up. And suddenly this call for tolerance, just a wall goes up. And he's like, well... You know, and I love it. I think Wilma says something like, whatever happened to that, that call for tolerance and understanding you had like three seconds ago? And he's like, well, back then I was part of the minority. Yeah. And <laughs> Well, I, I think that there's a really interesting kind of sub metaphor there because, you know, he's talking about like, I'm just trying to pitch this idea of marriage to begin with. And now you people are coming in and trying to expand it to other things that I never intended and it isn't even a stable concept in and of itself. Let's just get it for the straight people first that I think really mirrors a lot of the arguments that you see amongst the LGBT community, especially for trans people, where they're like, why are we always at the back of the bus? You're constantly trying to get rights for gay and lesbian people. You're trying to get rights for minorities and the trans people are always told it's not your turn yet. You know, you help mm. us get our rights and then later on we'll help you get yours. And a lot of trans people are incredibly frustrated by this, understandably so. And I think that that plays into this whole marriage metaphor in this issue in a really subversive way that you, you know, you may not notice immediately. I, I kind of love that about that is that you see somebody who's complex, like the priest is not somebody who's just a cartoon of one thing or another, that one minute he's talking about tolerance, and then you see the limits of his tolerance almost right away when he wants, somebody wants to expand that. And then there's this moment where Fred just kind of opens up and just says, I don't want to be part of an institution if Adam and Steve can't be a part of it. And mm -hmm. he has just his heartfelt speech about, you know, who Adam and Steve were and the role that what they call non-breeders had in hunter-gatherer societies that, you know, there's an extra set of hands to help with kids and to help people survive and gather food and, and how these people were important parts of my life. And, and there's this great moment where the priest just goes, Oh, I guess I have a lot to think about but I probably won't. And he just walks away. <laughs> and yeah. the thing I love that this series does frequently is it'll make you laugh or like laugh out loud. But then you have this moment of, Oh God, it's, <laughs> it's this like ugly truth to it that there's an understanding that the world is absurd and often ugly and it's funny, but when it's funny, it's often also humiliating. <laughs> yeah, there's and a, there's, there's a, a lot of gallows humor in this book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really biting. And I don't think any conversation about this uh, this comic can be had without talking about appliances. Oh, yeah. That oh, yeah. yeah. Probably the bit that people come back to, probably the most with this book, is there's the story of Bowling Ball and Vacuum Cleaner, a baby elephant and an armadillo, who live under the sort of heel of exploitation that comes with convenience. And I know that Mark Russell had equated this to, well, I got an iPhone now. Look at all this cool stuff I can do. But it was made by a person in a factory who they had to set up suicide nets to stop them from killing themselves. That's what their life was like. And that the idea of a camera in this world, it's a little stone box that you have to force a little bird to live in to chisel stuff for you. And that'll be your photograph. Your um, washing machine is an octopus that lives in there. And you've got the Power Goat 5000. <laughs> and you have all of these appliances that 
you tell yourself you need, you're trying to fill that meaning hole because as, as Barney says, it's like, well, I don't really need it, but you look like a bum if you don't have it. <laughs> and, um, the sort of idea that these are living creatures that the joke in the old Flintstones thing is that they were sort of this Greek chorus that would just look at the camera and go, Oh, it's a living. <laughs> and, and he'd go back to being an octopus, you know, uh, washing machine. But the idea that there's all these animals, you notice that they use kind of a slur with each other. They say, Oh, appliance, please. <laughs> and the fact that they basically live as slaves in this house and this poor stork has to stand there as a lamp all day with a lit and, candle right behind his head. And it's yeah. only when the humans leave that they start talking amongst themselves. And there's just these moments where this could be the whole joke, but this storyline where a baby elephant who has to live in the, the closet as a vacuum cleaner. Makes, uh, makes a friend with a bowling ball who doesn't understand why this human rolls him at these stone pins over and over and over again. And the bowling ball is an armadillo. He's an armadillo. Yeah. yeah there's, there's a running storyline within this comic of the alien nation that society and that civilization creates where, you know, we, we can feel our own feelings of alienation and regret and the way that society dehumanizes us but at the same time these characters are perfectly willing to turn around and equally dehumanize each other and other creatures um there's a there's a line very similar to that one from the uh meteor issue where wilma is uh talking about her past and she says human beings are just walking accumulations of love and regret the only thing that ever made me happy is being next to somebody who loves me. And then later on, you get that conversation between vacuum cleaner and bowling ball where vacuum cleaner is saying, I have no idea when I'll ever see daylight again, but do you know what keeps me going there in the dark? Knowing that my friend bowling ball is in, on the other side of the door. It makes me think maybe the only meaning to life is that which we get from each other. And so there's this running dialogue in this book about people being alienated from each other and trying to fill that void when, with things when they really need to be filling it with their connection to other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the thing I really kind of love is that you have these often parallel stories going on with humans trying to feel this. And Fred and Wilma are good people. They're, they they feel things for other people. They they take risks for other people. They're struggling with meaning. They listen to each other. You understand why these two love each other. And there's even moments where they are taken aback by levels of complexity of each other that they hadn't seen was there. Like there's a whole issue where Wilma, who is an aspiring artist, who does a lot of handprint art, has that sort of like the the snobs who just go, oh, let's just take our challenging commentary elsewhere. <laughs> uh, they just treat her like crap and stuff and no one, no gallery will hang it up, but it has this tremendous meaning for her. And Fred is kind of dismissive of it where he just kind of backs her because this is his wife and he supports her and loves her. But she explains to him what it means and that these handprints when they were hunter and gatherers were the sense that even if somebody died in our tribe, I still left a handprint somewhere. And that I, there's a place of the universe that denotes that I existed at some at some point, and then it means something. And you see that moment deepen Fred's relationship to her because he understands what that means to her in a way that he didn't before. And yet at the end of the, the storyline with bowling ball and uh, vacuum cleaner, one of them does die and you see them throw, <laughs> they throw this poor thing in the trash. And because there's a, a level of existence that the animals have that the humans are completely unaware of, uh, Fred just says, Oh, it's just a thing. <laughs> and it's biting because it's Fred saying it. And nobody is excused from saying or doing things that are this shocking or horrible. But we're also sort of insulated in our own perspective. And we have this inability to share that. And what I also find is interesting is on the same another layer to Fred's character. So there's they create movies. And so going to see movies are uh, uh, are a new thing that people are experiencing. And Barney calls Fred on the phone and says that there's a... Uh, there's a, they're playing a movie where women bear it all. And Fred is nervous because he said, well, I'm a married man. I don't want to get caught up into this. And it turns out that him and then a growing number of his friends are going to see like the equivalent of a rom-com, like a drama. Like one of them is basically Steel Magnolias. And they get together and talk about it. And it's like the, for the first time, they're, see, they're seeing conversations of women that are with each other. And it's like the most 
mind-blowing revelation to them. They're like, oh my god, it was amazing. The barriers to communication went down. And they're just yes, like, you know, yes. and they, so hilarious. They treat it like it's porn. Like yeah. They sneak off wearing trench coats to go to the movie theater to see basically the Joy Luck Club. Yeah. One of my very favorite moments in this book is actually buried in the background of a panel in one in like issue one or two where uh, Bam Bam and Pebbles are riding their bikes to school and you yes. see the sign outside oh, the mm-hmm. middle school. Mm-hmm. It's like home of the fighting tree people. Oh, yeah. And then over the course of the series, you learn about the tree people that used to live in this valley where Bedrock is now and how the people who live there now came in and exterminated all of the tree people. They just wiped them out so they could colonize this land. And from there, you get to, you know, Bedrock Middle School, home of the fighting tree people. <laughs> it's God. so wonderful. So, so, oh, God, it's it, it bites when you see yeah, it. It yeah. hurts. Yeah. It's, you're, oh. it's a beautiful pain in this it's, book because it just it's unremitting with these gut punches. When, but and, then it manages Fred, to somehow weave together all of these humorous, like black humor, certainly, but right. humorous moments. Well, Fred even admits to participating in genocide as oh, a part yeah, of it. As they, they talk about it, and they have they basically have the the VFW there where all, all the men stand around, and they, they reuse that element from, that was like the Moose Lodge. They had this fuzzy hat with the horns on it. Yeah, they the, had the original the order series. of the, the fraternity of the water buffalo or something right. like that. But they reuse it as like the helmets that they had in the military, and so when they're talking to each other, and it's basically a therapy session, They this mirrors like Vietnam. They have people that are literally they're broken and they have nightmares and they're suicidal because of the experiences of, of going through these. And in the meeting, the guy, did you notice the guy who's running the meeting is a tree person? I didn't notice that. Yes. The guy, I did not. The guy who's leading the meeting is a tree person. Yeah. Yeah. There aren't a lot of them left. And that was a, the, one of the big reveals um, that the re- the whole reason that Barney went off to fight this war in the first place, he was getting pressured by Fred, but it wasn't working. And it was the realization that I mean, he couldn't have kids with Betty and that she was desperate to have kids and he wanted to do something to protect her and make her feel safe or something like that. So he kind of ran away and did this thing because he wanted to sort of prove something. And Bam Bam is a kid that he found in the rubble as a, as sort of that, then he brought that home that the one good thing that sort of came out of it. And that's why Bam Bam is probably preternaturally strong. Yeah. He has superhuman, super, superhuman strength. I love Bam Bam strength. in this cause he's so laid back. Oh yeah. He just has no, he, he's kind of the anti-bully that people pick on things and he just walks over and picks the person, the bully up and carries them away. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he just, I, I kind of love that about him. Um, the kind of commentary from, from Pebbles and Bam Bam, there's a whole thing about the election where uh, the bully is actively running for uh, class president. And uh, he's basically saying, you know, all you people are easy to be picked on. I'll make you feel strong again. You know, everything will be great and it'll be easy. We'll get rid of all the school player on monitors. Yeah. And it's just, let's get rid of all the things that get it in my way. And you can feel strong doing that. And, uh, what was that? Bebel says something it's like something like the solution to bullying isn't to elect the bullies. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's pretty great. I mean, a lot of little things. At the same time, there's the the mayoral election that's happening between sort of the the bureaucrat that runs the place and essentially a Mad Max warlord <laughs> called Claude the Destroyer, who just wants to lead us in a war of aggression against the lizard people, who we only see in these little montage things. Yeah. And they're always wearing lizard masks and setting themselves on hot rocks. <laughs> right. And we also find out that Claude's father is the one who led the campaign against the tree people to yes. begin with and so you see this cyclical just history repeating itself that the the oh that's one of my favorite bits too the economics professor brings this up in oh that same God. issue Holy this shit. guy who they bring in to speak to the kids about this new um the new uh theory of economics and what this is and it's one of my favorite pieces of dialogue in the entire book When he explains what economics is, he says, when you trick somebody into participating in a small-time fraud, it's called a scam. But when the scam is so big that people have have no choice but to participate, it's called economics. (laughs) And... The uh, they cut to a thing with uh, Fred being told that their rent is going up, and he's like, "My rent's going up, but I just got a raise." Yeah, that's why your rent's going up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's just it's like harsh. And the an economics professor keeps popping in and says, "Well, you know, civilization so much more food was created by the gatherers and the people who grew food than the hunters, but the hunters are the, always the ones that we glorified in art." 
They're the ones that we make leaders, whether they're good leaders or not. And it keeps referencing to, of course, Claude the Destroyer, that he closes a children's hospital so that they can go to war with that, even enlists the aid of Stony Danza. <laughs> Beloved actor Stony Danza He's a, to like, sell his unpopular policies. Oh, and it's just to like put, to put more uh, war armor on top of the T Rexes that they ride into battle. And I like at one point where they're marching off. Uh, Barney goes, "Well, say what you will about this guy, Fred. That dinosaur armor does look pretty sweet." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's really the amazing thing about this book is that there are so many favorite moments. It's just it's chalked to the brim with these kind of this kind of commentary that you so rarely see. Oh, it's so good. Like, that, I, oh. I think that this comic book could be taught in schools. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I really do think that's one of the few things that I'd put on a level with even, say, Watchmen, as this is a book that I want non-comic readers to read. And I've got to say that I do have a massive ulterior motive for wanting to do this comic for this episode, and it's because that I have the hardest time getting people to try it. That I have tried every time, and what I get is bemusement. And people go, oh, that does look pretty nice. Not amusement enough to try it, but I really think that people, if they tried it, would love this. So many people that just think it's funny that there's a comic book about Fred Flintstone where he's dealing with existential angst uh, is great. And there's something just human about this book. There's a compassion for the characters that I think a lot of books that are about issues or about ideas or, you know, it's like a political cartoon is really biting, but it's just one panel. So the the fact that these aren't really characters doesn't matter because it's the point that matters. But when you drag it out to a story, oftentimes people who have a really biting point to make forget to love their characters. And that's the thing this book does so well that you even feel bad for Claude the Destroyer at one point. (laughs) Even he has emptiness (laughs) in his life. And they probably have the best solution to ending his regime that I've ever seen. And I think I'd like to see it used in real life at some point. Um, But it's... Yeah, that was clearly the the artist working on on something, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was working on something. That Wilma's the one that ultimately solves the Claude the Destroyer problem <laughs> i i i love it and there's a Werner herzog uh guy what was it? the whole thing is 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 great and this book is wonderful and it's wonderful in a way that i think so many people could get something really out of it like you said i would love to see this taught in graphic novel classes and stuff to students well, I, i'm not just saying in graphic novel classes i'm talking about like english literature yeah. oh god it's yeah. great like i i think that there is as much to be gained from this as something like 1984 oh, so or good. fahrenheit 451 like i i think that the the commentary and the discussion that flows from the reading of this is something that would benefit every student yeah, I'm in full agreement. And yeah. and it does it without actively changing everything about the Flintstones. Everything you saw at the surface level of the Flintstones, including things that sucked in the original Flintstones, like the Great Gazoo. <laughs> yeah. right. The Great Gazoo is amazing in this. The idea that uh, he's essentially there, his, his title roughly translates to Game Warden, that he's just there to stop other aliens from messing with Earth and getting in the way of their natural evolution. Like uh, an alien lands in the middle of a picnic to try to sell. Uh, he's trying to buy all of the oceans <laughs> for like a string of beads. <laughs> from Fred. Fred's like, I don't know if I have the authority to. And uh, Great Gazoo shows up and shoots the guy away. And he's like, sorry. And he's like, oh, I guess thank Gazoo. You know, and he's like, hey, I just I don't want to get anyone in the way of your natural uh, evolution. And then a group of like marauding warlords starts screaming and running at them. <laughs> like, you going to do something about that, Gazoo? He's like, no, that's your natural evolution. <laughs> and just takes off in his ship. And I just love it. Yep. Oh, God. I mean, everything about this book. So I guess we're getting to the question that I think we've answered a billion times. Yeah. Is the Flintstones worth your time? Oh, 110% yes. Yeah. If if you were turned off, as I was at the beginning, by just being like, well, it's Flintstones and you know how silly how silly and dated and ridiculous of a, of a property the Flintstones actually was before, um, just cast all that outside of your mind and just it, and start afresh because that's exactly what it does. Yeah. Just understand that this isn't about the Flintstones. The Flintstones is a vehicle to tell you one of the most biting and humanist stories that I think you may ever read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this this is a book that makes you feel. 
Yeah. It's it's a it's a thing that is genuinely laugh out loud funny. It is genuinely thought provoking. It has great characters. And oh my god, if if there's only one thing that you ever buy on our recommendation, I would say make it the Flintstones. There's only two volumes of it, 12 issues. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever comic book shop or your library. It's the even library. Wor- it's even worth looking to see if your library has it because it's it's just that good. It is so good. Yeah. Oh my god, if you're going to Pick up anything, pick up the Flintstones by Mark Russell and Steve Pugh. Yeah, I, I said it at the top of the episode. I'll say it again. This was my number one book of 2017. And I say that as somebody who probably read at least 100 different things in 2017, doing a podcast very much like this, reading a lot of different things. It's just markedly the best work of anything, of any genre, of any medium that I read in 2017. And it's based on a licensed product from a cartoon caveman who lives has on a sitcom. <laughs> that it everything about it just goes. That's probably bad. It's not. Try it. Try it. It's so yeah. fucking good. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Th- thank you so much, Tobias, for being here. Uh, if we wanted to listen to more of you, if our listeners wanted to check out your stuff, where could we find out more about what you do? Well, thank you guys for having me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want to see more from me, uh, probably the easiest place for you to look is viewfromthegutters.com. Which you all should be familiar with now. Um, you've, you've heard our other guests. Yeah, I'm going to say that again because I stuttered. Um, viewfromthegutters.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also check out my personal website, pension.net if you want to see more things specifically from me cool absolutely please check that stuff out folks and we will catch you all next month radio versus the martians is hosted by mike gillis and casey doran this podcast is recorded in beautiful val verde in seattle washington our chief engineer is casey doran and our editor is mike gillis our original theme music was written and performed by todd maxville matsumoto special thanks to sam Mulvey. Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at radioversusthemartians.com.